Beef Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to be discussing one of the series of seven topics covered in the Beef Feedlot Roundtable series that was held February 23rd, 24th, and 25th, as well as March 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. These webinars have been recorded and will be available for viewing at the beef.unl.ed website. Today, I have the privilege of being joined by Dr. Galen Erickson, who gave a research update as part of the Beef Feedlot webinar series. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Erickson. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to do it. Well, Dr. Erickson, one of the topics you covered in the webinar series was focused on particularly some research that's been done there at the University of Nebraska, looking at different corn processing methods. And when we look at current corn prices today, this probably is of heightened interest to many folks just because when we can further process that corn, uh, capture more of the energy value that's there, uh, that has particular value, especially when we look at prices of corn that's where they are today. Share with us some of the research that's been done, uh, some of the data that you have, and how that might have application to people who are feeding cattle. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, as you alluded, feed prices really uh, reemphasize the need to process corn correctly. And, and frankly, um, small changes in efficiencies translate into bigger dollars as feed costs and costs of gain are higher. So we were testing essentially a, a roller mill process versus a hammer mill process for high moisture and dry roll corn. Did that, of course, in the fall uh, with the high moisture corn at harvest time and then stored those in a bunker and then uh, harvest the same dry corn from those same fields. And then over the course of the feeding trial, process the two dry corns as either rolled or, or hammer milled dry corn. When we went to feed them, um, of course, we wanted to make it more complicated. And so we fed not just the dry rolled corn and the hammer milled dry corn, and then, of course, the two high-moisture corns, we also then blended them together. So we did a 50-50 blend of rolled high-moisture corn and rolled dry corn. And then, of course, a 50-50 blend of the two hammer-milled uh, corns. And, and as you'd expect, I think the, uh, the cattle tended to eat less of the high-moisture corn. It's, it's got more energy in it if you can capture it. High-moisture corn also um, can lead to more acidosis challenges, right? Everybody's kind of aware of that. So cattle naturally tend to eat a little less high-moisture corn. When we say high-moisture corn, you know, we targeted 30% moisture. 28 to 30% moisture is our, our recommended moisture target for high-moisture corn, and that's what we put it up as was 30% moisture corn. So we saw the typical responses with intake where cattle fed high-moisture corn ate less than cattle fed the dry corns, but uh, not a lot of difference in the, between the rolled and the hammer mill. Gains were about the same for all of those diets, except for the hammer milled high moisture corn. And we think that's because some of the finer particles may have been even more challenging with that high moisture corn. So when we get back to feed conversion, and, and that's really the measure of feed efficiency, and I would argue gain as well as feed conversions are both important, but we didn't see much difference between rolling and, and hammer milled uh, dry corns or the blend. But when we went to high moisture corn, the roller mill was about 5% more efficient. And that was a, an automatic ag uh, new roller mill that, that we were using. And I think that's, that's primarily because of the more uniform particle size, which we of course measured of those corns over the course of the feeding trial. So, uh, so we strongly encourage you to get a, a, a good roll 
and process that corn prior to going in a bunker and, and pay close attention to how you process high moisture corn to get the most out of it. Because obviously as, as that corn price is higher, it's even more money tied up in that bunker and critical that you manage shrink and, and putting it up correctly. Galen, what were the other components of the ration besides the, obviously the ingredient of corn, what were the other components that were part of that? Yes, it's a good question. We, we, we tried to do a very typical diet of the day. And so the corn was 70% of the ration on a dry basis. The still, wet distiller's grains was fed at 20% on a dry basis, which is about where we're at today. Most feed yards are feeding 15 to 20% on a dry basis. Just so everybody's aware, that would convert to about 30% on an as-fed basis. So, so that's always an important conversion for, for feed yards and producers to understand. It had, um, had roughage in at 5% corn stalks on a dry basis, and then, of course, supplement that provided mineral and feed additives. And what was the feeding time frame for these cattle? How long were they on this ration? Yeah, these were, these were some yearlings that we fed. Essentially, they were fed from May to October time frame. So, um, you know, summer type yearling cattle. Was any carcass data collected on those cattle? Yep. In all of our studies, of course, we take them through the carcass endpoint. So we collected carcass weights. That's what our final weights and gains are really based on. And then um, the traditional carcass traits that producers would get paid for on a grid anyway, fat depth, uh, ribeye areas, and uh, marbling. And, and obviously marbling translates to quality grade and percent choice. And really no impacts there across those treatments. As you would expect, that there, there, there was just not an, you know, these aren't different enough to cause any dramatic shifts in carcass traits like marbling and so on. So we would expect producers really to only see impact on, on average day of the gain and feed conversions from those different diets. One of the other things you talked about from a feed standpoint was integing corn. Give a little more update on the work that's been done there and kind of where you're at today in terms of utilizing that in a feed. Yeah, I've really been excited to partner with Syngenta to test the feeding of vintage and corn and thought that it would have some improvement in, in cattle performance because of the potential impact on starch digestion. And again, as, as feed costs are high, if we can improve conversions, uh, that's a real plus. But we did notice that across all these different studies, which there was six of them that we had done, we had different inclusions of byproducts and, and distillers grains and, and sweet brand from Cargill. And we noticed that the response was a little variable. Uh, sometimes integin worked better than others compared to non-integin corn. And so we, I think this summary is very useful for us because I think it tells the full picture now. What we saw was that feeding integin corn does improve conversions by about four and a half percent in diets that don't have distillers grains. And actually the response gets less to feeding integin corn if, as you feed more distillers. Doesn't mean that, that it's not still good to feed, it's still actually you know, a little better, but the more distillers you feed, the less quote unquote improvement we saw by feeding integin compared to non-integin. So for example, at 30% inclusion of distillers on a dry basis, which would be about 50% as fed, which is much higher than what we're feeding today, Really, there was no difference due to feeding integin corn or not. They all cattle converted the same at sick. But uh, at 0% inclusion of distillers, we saw a 4.5% response. And then we did a lot of studies feeding distillers grains, more typical of inclusions today. 
of, you know, 15 to 20%. And in that range, we see a significant improvement to feeding Inogen, but now it's about a two to two and a half percent response to Inogen on conversion. So I think that's insightful for producers to know that that today at inclusions of distillers we're feeding, we would expect to see a, a, a about a two and a half percent improvement in conversion. But if over time we feed less and less distillers, there's actually probably more opportunity to feed Inogen corn and, and see an even greater response. So there's a lot of things there and certainly encourage people to look at that. What's interesting is it's, it's kind of like some of our other corn processing work. Uh, Inogen corn works great in diets with gluten feed or sweet bran, which so if people are using those feed products, appeared to work well. Um, the other comment I would make and for everybody to remember is that um, we've not studied it with steam flaking and we have studied it though with high moisture corn and don't see a response. So our recommendation is, is that if you're feeding typical levels today of distillers in that 15% of dry matter or so, you should expect about a two and a half percent improvement in conversions if you, if you grow and feed energy corn and process it as dry rolled corn. Dr. Erickson, one of the other things you gave an update on was utilizing corn silage and utilizing that in our diet and at higher levels and then either with Thailand or without Thailand. Give a little more research update on that in terms of the data that you have now. What are some of the implications for producers from that data in terms of how they might think about feeding cattle as we move forward? Yeah, you know, we've, we've been looking at opportunities for smaller uh, producers, maybe that are farming and feeding out their own cattle. And, and it's, it's pretty uh, logical uh, economically and otherwise, we think, to feed maybe more silage than, than the old days in finishing cattle. And, but what we thought was, well, you're feeding more forage then and more roughage. Does that help us with this liver abscess issue? And that's, that's, as you know, that's a big issue for the beef industry and, and some more and more pressure on using Tylosin and, and it's really the only antibiotic that we're feeding for control of liver abscesses today. And it's very effective. You know, it really helps control liver abscesses. But we asked the question, um, does this response different for liver abscesses if we follow some of these recommendations or if a smaller feeder wants to feed more silage than normal, maybe two or three times more silage than normal in our typical finishing diets. So this was work funded by the Iowa Beef Council through their producer checkoff that does allow funding for, for production work. And uh, we did a large study, it's in our 2021 Nebraska Beef Report, and looked at feeding 15% silage in the diet on a dry basis versus 45 silage. And we've done a lot of studies with that in the past, looking at the economics and the performance. And, and it's important to note that gain will decrease some and conversions will, decrease, will get poorer, they'll increase by feeding more roughage as silage. But we also know that it's more economical if you're buying that silage correctly and or raising it yourself. So we saw the same trend here where we, as we fed more the 45% silage, we did see a depression in gain slightly and did see a increase in conversions. But when we looked at feeding it with and without Thailand, essentially, uh, I'll just repeat these numbers. When we fed 15% silage with no Thailand, we had 34.5% liver abscesses. When we fed 15% silage with Thailand, we saw about 19% abscesses, so a big decrease, as, as has been noted in lots of work, that Thailand feeding is very effective. 
But when we went to 45% silage, we saw only 12, 12 to 12.5% abscesses total. And it was the same whether we fed Thailand or not. So I think that illustrates that, that clearly the more roughage we include in these finishing rations, it does decrease the incidence and risk of liver abscesses, which obviously we think is directly tied to, to acidosis challenges from just grain feeding. And, and might be a way that if, if I was a smaller farmer feeder and raising my own corn and, and putting that up as silage, you know, I could feed my cattle higher levels of silage, still control liver abscesses, and maybe not have to worry as much about, about including um, something like Tylosin for control of, of abscesses. But again, that only worked if, we've, if we uh, increased the inclusion of silage. But pretty exciting, and, and I think um, kind of worked the way we expected it to. Dr. Erickson, you covered a couple other topics in the feedlot update. Share with us a little more on that, some of the research that's been done in the panhandle looking at the possibility of actually including wheat in a finishing diet, and then also some more research that's been done with corn silage. Yeah, well, there's been some interest in how does other small grains feed, and pretty excited about a trial we recently did out at the, at the Panhandle Research and Extension Center uh, there in Scotts Bluff. And and, you know, that's the part of the state and, and there's different regions of the country where wheat can sometimes price in, uh, and especially if it's feed wheat. Really, the question was feeding wheat or not to cattle isn't a new concept. And we also know that feeding wheat can increase some of the rumen acidosis challenges. It's actually a little harder to feed than, than corn. But, you know, we, we didn't know how it was going to work in today's types of diets. So, what we did out there is we really fed uh, wheat uh, at, at half of the grain mix or not. And then we fed that in diets with either 12% distillers or 30% distillers. And the reason we did that was because, you know, we thought maybe with more distillers in a diet at 30% inclusion on a dry basis, that might help with some of the acidosis things. So maybe we'll get even a better response to wheat than we would in diets with 12% distillers, for example. And, um, and we didn't include any diets with no distillers because that's just not that common. And that work's kind of been done in the past. So we, we had dry rolled corn alone or half of the grain as dry rolled wheat and then dry rolled corn. And then again, in two diets, diets that either contain 12% distillers or 30% distillers. So pretty interesting results. Uh, we actually, in both diets did not see any real change when we fed 50% wheat as the grain mix versus uh, just straight dry rolled corn. And it didn't react differently whether there was 12 or 30% distillers. We did see a difference in diets due to feeding 30% distillers compared to 12. The cattle fed 30% distillers gained uh, three nine and the cattle fed 12% distillers gained uh, three, just, just under three eight. Conversion uh, at 30% distillers was 6.1, and those conversions increased to about 6.4 with 12% distillers. So there was an advantage to feeding the 30% distillers, but the wheat feeding didn't react differently uh, when we put it in at half of the mix. So, you know, our conclusion is, is and this happens about 30% of the time over the last 10 years when we've looked at local wheat prices, it's been priced competitively to corn about 30% of the time in the panhandle in, in southwest Nebraska and then, of course, in, in northeastern Colorado. So we think there's an opportunity uh, certain months of the year when wheat may price in and, 
and just wanted to have data for people to use in today's types of diets. The other thing I'd mention, Aaron, um, is, you know, a lot of interest in silage and, and concerns maybe this coming year and as every year with what's the weather going to be like and in and, and response to drought and, and what kind of fees do, can we have. Just want to reemphasize to everybody that, that forage prices will fluctuate and, and grain prices are going to obviously fluctuate from year to year but not to forget about pricing silage and looking at, looking at that as an ingredient for, for energy for cows. Probably got more energy in silage than what they need, so may have to think about limit feeding it or combining it with other ingredients, but uh, it works well with cows, works great for backgrounding calves. And then like today, some of the things we talked about uh, works pretty well. Certainly works great as a roughage source and finishing cattle and may have some opportunity to even increase the inclusion compared to typical levels. So just need a sharp pencil this year and as every year and, and variable prices and really be looking at what are your alternatives and forages and silages and, and grain. Dr. Erickson, you mentioned this, but where can folks go to find some of the copies of the research that's been done and, and review some of the data themselves? Yeah. As always, all of our Nebraska beef reports are, are put up on our beef website, beef.unl.edu, and across the top, there's a section called reports. Encourage you to, to look at them online. If anybody uh, should, have, should, should have gotten a mailing if you're on our mailing list, but if you're not on our mailing list, certainly feel free to reach out to me or Aaron or others in, in extension and get on our mailing list. Um, but, but if you'd like a hard copy of that, we still publish uh, about 1,500 hard copies a year. And a lot of producers I know enjoy reading the hard copy more than logging in. But all that information is available. And, and if you can't find it, certainly reach out to your local extension personnel. Well, thanks again for joining me today, Dr. Erickson. My pleasure. Well, for more information on the topic that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I'd encourage you to visit the beef.unl.ed website. Again, this is the topic that was covered in the 2021 Beef Feedlot webinar series. Those webinars have been recorded and are available at the beef.unl.ed website.